Up next is Cover to Cover, Open Book. Welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book. I'm guest host Max Pringle. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the death of Albert Camus, a Nobel Prize winning author of such modern classics as The Stranger and The Plague. Camus' novels, essays, and journalism helped shape the moral and ethical landscape of mid-20th century Europe and has left a lasting impression on millions of readers worldwide. My guest today, Elizabeth Hawes, is one of those devoted readers and the author of a new biography called Camus, A Romance. She's a contributor to The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Nation, and other publications. She joins us today from New York. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Elizabeth, what prompted you to write this book? Well, actually, I was coming off another book. Um, I was, uh, Camus had long been a literary hero of mine, dating back to um, the days when I was writing an honors thesis on him in college. Um, he was always sort of my writer. But and always had been my writer. But in any case, I had been just written a book about New York, and I was looking for another subject. My editor suggested I do find something bigger, 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 bigger. And I actually did not think immediately of Camus until the first man, his uh, last unfinished novel, came out. It came out first in French, and I heard about it and read it. And I, I was just overwhelmed by this book, by the fact that it was so autobiographical. It was meant to be a novel, but it was autobiographical autobiographical as it stood and that it was it was like a visitation it was Camus and I thought I have a subject I've had a subject for all these years and uh, at the time I first knew of him and read all his works there was very little known about Camus the man um, so you intuited who he was through his work but I wanted to really know who if he was who I thought he was so off I went when was that what year this was 1995 that it came out in France and then thereafter in, in America it's uh it was Le Premier Homme in France and was a huge success, which was not necessarily anticipated. And then it has been a success here, too. I think it's read uh, very widely by book clubs. It's an extraordinary treatise on, on growing up in dire poverty in Algeria, and, but, but a very lyric one, I mean, a very moving one and for a variety of reasons. I think it's been very popular. Now, the book is a biography, but it also weaves in your personal relationship uh, in reading Camus. Uh, is that why it's called a romance? Yes. Uh, well, there are several reasons. It was to distinguish it from an academic study or a straight biography, uh, and, and also because it really was an adventure for me. And I, um, I decided to do it this way in part because there was a very big biography that had just come out in France. It sort of took away the straight angle. I was, in fact, sort of planning to do it and sort of negotiating a different sort of book. And I decided to wait a bit and maybe find something else, and then I couldn't. And just decided to do it in a personal way because I I thought I was going to deal with a man, um, and I could deal with him very straight, and it really was a pursuit because he had been such a private character and private man, and he really was still. He had written a great deal um, that hadn't been published back then. It's Most of it's been published now, but even so, he was very private. As someone said to me in Paris, a Frenchman, he really was one of the last private men in France. Let's go into his early life a little bit. Where was he born and raised, and who were his parents? He was born in Algiers, or outside of Algiers, in a tiny town outside of Algiers, a little bit like a manger, because um, his parents were traveling, and he was sort of born in a barn, not not to 
say anything reading about that. But then grew up in Algiers in the very poor section of Algiers called Belcour. His father died in when he was just an infant in the war. Uh, he was, he had been, his family had been one of the original settlers, among the original settlers in France in the 18, from France in the 1850s, uh, to Algeria and so he was a Pinoir, but long time there, uh, but he had been sent, he'd served in France and died in the Battle of the Marne. So his mother, who, um, she was nearly mute and spoke very little and she was deaf and, or almost deaf and so he grew up with a mother who was very very silent whom he adored and his grandmother her mother who moved in after the father died who was a tyrant and an older brother and then an uncle moved in in a in a, a flat without any running water or you know to see or plumbing no stove they had to take food down the street when they wanted something cooked uh, to the butcher but that just seemed to be material for him. Uh, but it did set him apart. I mean, certainly the idea that he was an outsider, which, of course, the word stranger and l'étranger in, in French means outsider. Um, sometimes the book is translated in the beginning as the outsider, his first novel. Uh, that was the beginning of it. Um, he certainly had a sense of being, being someone other. Um, certainly when he got to be six or seven and off to school. Uh, school came, you know, was, was a great lucky break. He was in just an elementary school when he was discovered as somebody special by a teacher. And then when it came time to go on to the lycée, when he was meant to drop out of school and go to work and help support the family, um, the teacher went to visit his mother and, and said, you know, this child must stay in school. We'll do all we can to help. Uh, as, this, as the son of someone who had died in the war, he was what they call a, an orphan of the state. And so he was a scholarship student. But the mothers didn't want him, mother and grandmother didn't particularly want him to, you know, give up the livelihood that he would have brought in. But he, they were convinced, and he went on to school, and he loved school, and and had another extraordinary teacher. Uh, and they were substitute fathers, really, as as well as, you know, transmitters of a love of literature and many other things. But he was a, he was a good student. I, I think I say in the book he wasn't, I, I quote one of the... Professors are saying he wasn't really a prodigy. Uh, he, there wasn't anything unusual about him except he was so curious and so smart. He he played soccer and he was an imp and he was mischievous and he was put in the front row. And, and of course, they uh, were under the French system because Algeria was under French rule, was a, just a department of France. And so he had the classic lycée education. Uh, you describe Camus' relationship with an uncle who also encouraged him to write, a sort of a bookish uncle. Talk about how that relationship formed. That formed when at the age of 17, uh, with just a year to go at least, uh, Camus, they found that Camus had TB. Um, he had had episodes of coughing and spitting up blood, and they discovered it, and he was very, very sick. They um, thought he might die, uh, and so he took a year off, and he was... Uh, in the hospital for a while, and then he was having these treatments in the hospital all the time, and needed good food and nutrition and rest of a nature that he couldn't really get at home. And so he did have this uncle who um, was much more comfortable, was a character around town, was a butcher. So he went over to uh, live with his uncle, Gustave, who was married, and uh, certainly more well-off because he dressed quite well, and he had a car, and which he taught Albert to drive, and 
Albert could, could borrow when he got a little bit older on Sundays to drive. And, but he also had a library, and he had um, a profound love of literature, and he also had a great commitment to um, the rights of the Arabs and loved to talk politics in the cafe in town. And, and both those things had a big impact on Kemi, I think, who was, who was very early on not only a supporter but an activist for, for some sort of representation for the Arab world and Algiers, which they, you know, were, things were being proposed from France back in the 30s, but they never went through. You're listening to Cover to Cover Open Book. I'm guest host Max Pringle, speaking with author Elizabeth Hawes about her new biography of French literary great, Albert Camus. When we return, we'll talk more about Camus' formative years and his development as a writer. Stay tuned. We're back with Elizabeth Hawes, author of the new book Camus, A Romance. Elizabeth, what brought Albert Camus to France? It was TB again. He he might well have stayed in Algiers and become a an actor as well as a writer. Had he not had another episode of of a grave episode with TB and his lung collapsing. Uh, which necessitated his getting out of the very humid coast where he lived uh, near the Mediterranean, get up to some dry and pure air, and he went off to France. And it was right near Saint-Étienne, uh, which was a great resistance hub. And he was there recovering, meaning to go back to Algiers when the war broke out and the uh, Allied landing took place in North Africa, cutting the mainland off from North Africa, and he couldn't leave. He couldn't go back, and so he was in in France for the war, and he was in Saint Etienne for uh, a long time until he improved, and then he did get up to Paris. And it was in Saint Etienne that he got um, very close to the resistance movement. People aren't quite sure what he did exactly, other than helping all the other resistance. And, uh, and then when he got to Paris, he became editor of the underground newspaper called Combat which on uh, liberation became a, uh, a, it was a weekly, uh, became a daily that was above ground. And he became a very, very famous voice and a very familiar voice to the French during this time that they were reading this paper um, because he was the voice of the Résistance uh, and he was the voice of the future and the voice of courage. And uh, the paper had a huge success that everyone read it in those early days when France was trying to come out of the war and trying to figure out what to do about the collaborators and and it certainly was, was very formative of his, for him and his his voice as a journalist he had been a journalist for a while in North Africa but this was on a very different scale some of the old time journalists I met who in fact had been war correspondents knew about Camus knew about Combao and only recently in the last last decade have his pieces of journalism in those years been published as well as all his essays. Now tell me about the dangers he faced. He was publishing this under Nazi occupation. Yes, he was. Um, and it was, you know, the extraordinary hazardous life. Having to hide out often. Uh, he was often carrying copy, preparing copy in his apartment and had to change locations. 
had to get, you know, the copy delivered. You had to just transfer a lot of the stories you, you know, know of the Résistance and Résistance to his, because he didn't really talk about it. Others talked about it. And uh, his friends talked about what life was like. He had certainly had to get out of Paris for a while. He had run into, just by chance actually, uh, had run into Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir during this time, during occupation. Um, and they had become, uh, you know, the way it's told, it sounds like they were instant friends, but they certainly were drawn to each other. And Sartre and Camus both loved the theater. They met in the theater. Camus, um, very soon after his arrival in Paris, was having um, what turned out to be a lifelong affair with a famous actress in France by the name of Maria Cazares, one of the great actors, one of the great dramatic actresses in France of the century. And the minds of the French and uh, this camaraderie that developed among the, you know the underground and uh, with Sartre and others who were all Sartre was not working in the resistance but many others were and they kept each other you know they kept hope alive and courage alive with each other it was an extraordinary time that he writes about there too and they all write about the small club they had of getting themselves through the war and occupation and providing a future for France and it's when certainly the existentialist movement and you know, began to, uh, as as well as some of the notions of just what life had to be about, was formed in their minds, and they planned magazines, which then happened. Southwest famous magazine they formed right after the war, and uh, Camus planned things too. So it was a very active time in there, and a very meaningful time. And and liberation itself was, which he did write about in the newspapers. Extraordinary thing to behold. A lot of the details of occupation you can read in the in the in the plague, because Camus was writing the plague at that point. And um, in the plague, it's a town suffering from this epidemic and under quarantine and cut off from the world. And all the details, so many of the details of of occupation and of curfews uh, and of the fears and of the you know trying to figure out how to resist and what action to take in this particular circumstance were transposed into the plague. And that, of course, was fascinating for me and, and anyone who knows about it to begin to read and see how much of these details obviously came from his life. There's one particularly interesting uh, story in which he was nearly caught, but his and he had his papers on him, but his companion was able to hide him from the uh, soldiers. Yes, well, that's Maria, this actress, love, lifelong, as I said, uh, and he, she was with him. And they often rode on Paris uh, on a bike. In any case, they were caught. They were caught at a corner, and he somehow was able to pass the papers to her, and she put them in the coat. But afterwards, he said he was just terrified, and it was astonishing that, you know, that they did not examine her or, in fact, see him pass the papers. But I think there are many incidents like that. I, I think every day was like that, and everyone expected it. Uh, it's an extraordinary time, you know, particularly for an American as everyone who's read about the resistance and occupation knows, because we know we know nothing like that. You're listening to Cover to Cover Open Book on KPFA 94.1 FM. I'm guest host Max Pringle. Our guest today is Elizabeth Hawes, author of the new book Camus, A Romance. When we return, we'll discuss Camus' complicated love life. Stay tuned. Je suis
Welcome back to Cover to Cover Open Book. Elizabeth Hawes, tell me a little bit about the, um, the family life of Albert Camus. He seemed to have a turbulent relationship with women, although he had this, this lifelong love, of love that you were speaking of. Yes, he did love women. He was a very, you know, physical, sensual, Mediterranean being. But beyond that, and you know, without getting into pop psych, you can figure out a little bit that you know, complicated relationship certainly to mother and women, and and being sick and expecting to die so many different times in his life probably didn't uh, hurt you know his ego and libido and everything else. But he loved women. He always had a lot of girlfriends. When before he was married, um, he. He writes in The Myth of Sisyphus, he writes about Don Juan, who is one of his great heroes, who he thought of as someone who just was constant, renew, constantly renewing himself. And I think in a way that certainly is what Camus was doing with all his women because he you know, felt young and passionate and vibrant. And So he had many, many affairs. Um, he, some of them were very short-lived. The ones that I know about and most people know about uh, were with quite extraordinary women. And... When you see this, when you see that these were very intelligent women and they were devoted to him as he was to them all their lives, that they, uh, you know, evolved into friendships. But at the same time, there would be three or four of them at a time, you know, at a time. And he did marry. He married. He met the woman I mentioned whose relative had um, this and where he was staying and to recover from TB back before uh, he was cut off from France, from uh, Algeria during the war. He had this love back there, this woman he had met, Francine, who was also, you know, and father had been killed in the war, was um, very committed to Arab rights, was very serious. Um, she was a lovely, lovely woman. Anyway, he married her. He had had a very young and very quick marriage. He married at 19, which probably also had a big impact on him, and to a very beautiful, young, uh, sort of flower child who had a drug habit and which he thought he could help her with and cure, and, and he never could. And he, the relationship ended, and they were married really a little more than a year. And But I, I think he was just hugely distressed and disappointed and hurt uh, with all that. And But it was a number of years later that he did marry Francine, and after the war was, uh, occupation was over and the war ended, she then joined him in Paris, and he broke off with Maria. It was later he took up with her again. And... Uh, they had twins in about a year, and he was, he remained married to her always, although he did have these, you know, sort of serial affairs, long ones. Uh, he had one with an American woman, a young American woman he met during the one time he came to America for the publication of The Stranger in English, and right at the end of the war. And uh, then, as I said, he hooked up with Maria again and several actresses and then he was having an affair with a, another young painter woman at the end of his life that had lasted about three years when he was killed but they all um, were devoted to him and they were they were deep relationships why is it that Camus has inspired so much of an emotional connection uh, with readers like yourself well I think he does and, and Susan Sontag said it probably best and first because she said it way back in the 60s um, when she was reviewing uh, Camus' notebooks when they, the first volume came out, which was after I had done my thesis. And it was at a time when nobody knew much about Camus. 
And you don't learn a whole lot from his notebooks because they were meant to be literary notebooks. But nonetheless, they're very personal and private. And she said, you know, other writers of the 20th century, you know, that are important writers are admired, you know, respected, envied. But no one, not another modern writer is loved the way Camus is and that you love Camus. And, and whereas Sartre, for example, with whom he so often compared and, and they were long-time friends before they had the a very serious uh, breakup in the 50s. The, you don't have the same feelings. You don't really have feelings of that sort. You have an intellectual response to self. And I think they're very, very personal feelings that you get with Camus, which which inspire love. And some of it is the sense, uh, because he is writing from experience, and he somehow is involving the reader in his search for the way to live, which is what he always said he wanted to write about, trying to figure out how to live in this world of he called absurd, but it was a world of violence, death, and despair for many people. And he certainly had lived through a great deal of um, violence and war. You know, World War Two. His father died in World War One, the Spanish Civil War, and then all the revolutions that then took place in Hungary and elsewhere. So it was a century of violence in his mind, the mind of all of us, certainly the so-called existentialists. Camus was a lifelong supporter of the political left, but he fell out with friends and colleagues um, over his strong opposition to totalitarianism and political violence during the 20th century. And what effect did those battles, you know, with the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, who you mentioned earlier, what, what uh, effect did that have on him? Well, the, the fallout with Sartre, which was a very public fallout, and it came with uh, just after the publication of Camus' book of essays, on revolution called the rebel and it's also about revolt or the so-called rebel as a response to the sort of helplessness um and the nihilism of the world that you, you really have to do something and you have to define yourself and you have to take action and in in criticizing revolution he was taking rather sort of not classic french positions he even criticized the french revolution there and he he was essentially coming down against any form of totalitarianism and the sense that had come to the conclusion that, that through all the revolutions he knew and the revolutions, you know, that were being, you know, proposed by, particularly by communist writers and the Soviet Union and Stalin in particular, could only, only ended in tyranny and that there were other values that had to be safeguarded. And in coming down, you know, against totalitarianism and taking on the communist left at that point, Camus was asking for trouble. He also wrote, in, you know, from a moral, he, he wasn't writing as a politician, he was writing as a moralist, which the pure intellectuals tended to, to resent. They found him just too much of a moralist. They referred to his pedestal, his portable pedestal, and, it's, and he was very... Uh, he was hurt at this sort of criticism and not didn't quite understand it. He was aware of a different sort of stance and a different attitude than most. But but when the rebel came out and, and it was read, uh, Sartre assigned somebody in his magazine to review it that he didn't expect to give it a good review, but not a bad one. And he, this other man um, by the name of Jean-Fon gave it a terrible review and just took it and Camus apart. And Camus was just astounded. He had, you know, he socialized with Sartre. They were friends. And a couple of the chapters of this book, the rebel had been 
I think Rebel, the Man in Revolt is the way it's now translated. Um, they had been published in, in Sartre's magazine. So he was just astonished, and he wrote a letter to the editor, hoping that Sartre would say, would step in and, and say, well, no, no, that was too harsh, and, you know, at least relieve some of this, this savage criticism. And instead, Sartre wrote a letter back to him, a public letter, just, again, taking up the criticism of the book and calling him a banal thinker and an empty thinker and uh, with a poor view of history, but then savaged him as a person, a very personal. Reading it today, I mean, anyone read it, you just, you know, you you quiver and tremble for Camus. It is, it is among the nastiest prose you've ever read, demeaning. And it, it really did Camus in for a long time. He is, even though he... Um, he knew it all wasn't. He feared that and maybe in some ways they were right. Maybe he was a poor thinker. He wasn't a philosopher. He was a writer. He always said that. And he didn't wasn't a systematic thinker. And he wasn't very good at political thinking. He didn't analyze things the same way. But it it fed into what became, you know, real despair and and a writer's block for many years. And although he published was writing some short stories, uh he he wasn't publishing all he wanted to. He wanted to change anyway. He had thought that he had to move on, and it was a slightly different type of prose and narration. He was a great fan of Tolstoy's, and he wanted to write a very long epic novel, which this last book called ended up The First Man was going to be. But he couldn't really get started on it. And it was during this period that the Algerian War broke out, which was uh, profoundly difficult for him because he did not want to see the French and the Arab world separated. He thought that they could somehow handle it still, keeping the two nations together, and that Algeria didn't need its independence, because if so, he thought it would become a strictly Arab world and there'd be violence. In any case, he didn't want to be disenfranchised. He had, he had grown up in a very different time before things were as radicalized. In any case, so the Algerian War had happened, and then he was given the Nobel Prize at a point where he was feeling like he... When would he write again? And, and in that sense, the Nobel Prize was a disaster for him. He didn't particularly want it. He didn't like honors, and certainly public honors. And he felt like, you know, his work was not over. A Nobel Prize tends to mean, you know, that you have a body of work and you're a writer that should be recognized, you know, as a figure and a classic figure, which in classic sort of a deadly word if you, you know, you want to be an up-and-coming-on-the-edge, edgy sort of writer. And he was changing. So all that figured into this long, very, very difficult period for him at the end of his life. And then he died prematurely in a car accident uh, before he got to publish The First Man or finish any of this, before the war in Algeria had ended, although it was violent and he knew it was not going to end well. And, it would, you know, the independence was coming. But up until the end, he hoped it wouldn't and was negotiated behind the scenes, was not speaking out anymore because he felt like, you know, he, he just agitated the population by stating his views, but he continued to work behind the scenes to um, for human rights and standing up for actually for a lot of Arab, you know, fighters and soldiers and things that were imprisoned and, and helping the Gaul, he hoped to, you know, see clearly. He thought the Gaul might pull off you know, a new relationship for France and Algeria in which they were together. But, of course, he didn't. Again, the rest of the world, to whom he was the Nobel Prize winner, the wonderful writer, didn't necessarily know these details. So he didn't suffer outside of France, I don't think. And, of course, you know, writers are very different characters in translation than they are to, you know, when they're native-born and, you know, all the gossip and they've been in the limelight and they've and in politics and... 
you know, debated. But uh, he died and, you know, certainly out of favor with the intellectuals. And in a lot of despair himself, he was starting to write at the very end of his life and thought everything was going to be all right. But he hoped he was going to spend a lot of time in the theater, too, and, you know, keep out of politics and keep away from the intellectuals in France from whom he felt uh, so alienated. What Camus book would you recommend to readers who are new to his work? What's a good introduction? I still think The Stranger's a gem. And it's fast. I mean, it's a, it's a small novel with big implications. It moves very fast. It can be read as an, you know, an exotic, you know, adventure story in some ways. But, of course, it isn't, and it catches you up. I still think that's a great introduction. I also think The First Man uh, is a very good introduction to a third world writer. Go on. It's an introduction to him. And it's an introduction to Algeria. It isn't an inter- and it's it's very lyric. It's very much like his early work, as opposed to his later work. Uh, a lot of people like the plague. In fact, I was amused to see that uh, it is assigned to medical students very widely, because of uh, you know, and also gratified because of the different approaches to saving you know a life or a population or whatever that different ways of taking action. It's a lesson in medicine as well. Okay, well, that's all we have time for today on Open Book. I'm Max Pringle. Our guest today has been Elizabeth Hawes. She's author of the new biography, Camus, A Romance. It's out now from Grove Press. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you. It's been fun. For more information about Open Book, go to www.bookwaves.com. Open Book is produced by Richard Walensky at KPFA Pacifica Radio. And La Pena Community Chorus join voices to celebrate a common history of solidarity with the peoples of Southern Africa and Latin America and our support for social justice and peace. With rich harmonies, La Pena Chorus brings Latin American Nueva Cancion to life. And Volcani Mawetu sings of struggles and freedom in Southern Africa and the U.S. The event benefits Vukani Mawetu Choir and La Pena Community Chorus. $17 in advance, $20 at the door. For advanced tickets, call 510-849-2568, extension 20, or go to www.lapena.org. That's Sunday, March the 21st, 7 p.m. at La Pena Cultural Center, 3105 Chateau.